Hello, and welcome to Native Awakenings. Here at Native Awakenings, we've created a space to share stories, heritage, techniques, meditations, and conversations, all to connect us back to our sense of truth, self, love, consciousness. Today, we have the wonderful experience of talking with Tara. Before I get too deep into the description, I want to let you know that some things have changed. One of which is that Cove Yoga has closed and Tara has moved on to many beautiful other endeavors. So you'll hear Cove Yoga talked about in this podcast. However, it is no longer open. You can find Tara at taramichelle.com and in the show notes, I will type up more areas and places in which you can locate her and her wonderful gifts. I had a blast speaking with her. Talking to this yoga teacher had me meditating on things like Jungian philosophy, microdosing, consciousness, and the change that yoga has experienced as it's come to the West. I'm thrilled to present this podcast with Tara, and I'm excited for you all to soak up the wisdom in which she so proficiently displays. And let's get on to the episode. We just did a super awesome practice. We did a box breath you mentioned. Mm-hmm. What was the yogic name for that? Samafriti. Samafriti. Pranayama. So I'm in the best mood right now because we just did Samafriti Pranayama. I also, as I was walking upstairs, thankfully you let me into your house. I saw a whole board, a whole wall full of degrees and diplomas, and which was impressive to me. What I've noticed about people that have degrees is that they can tend to be a little bit structured, a little bit rigid. A question I have for you is, even though you've gone through extensive schooling, how did you keep your flow? How did you keep your creativity alive, even in structured places? Ooh, that's a great question. I think a yoga practice helps with balance in that sense, where I can tell when I'm being too structured or rigid and trying to find the place to allow that human experience or flexibility back in. I don't tend to do well under a lot of structure. So having been in the corporate world for a decade wasn't the most beneficial or aligning to, you know, how I like to operate. So Having opened the studio allows me a lot of that freedom. And I think that when we kind of lean into change, we're allowing ourselves to stay in that flow, even through the structure of schooling and meeting different deadlines, taking the time to essentially integrate what is being learned so that it becomes a part of you and you don't feel the need to kind of hold on to it yeah. and kind of just let the pieces that don't serve you go. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> That's cool. I love the balance. Yoga does bring us balance in a lot of ways. And it sounds like you were in the corporate world for a decade and still finding the balance of yoga now that you've opened the studio, Cove Yoga, which is an amazing place. People should go check it out. What did you do in the co- corporate world? I did marketing and communications uh, for companies in sports and outdoor. So from Adidas, 
to a company called Buff Headwear where I spent a lot of time. They're neck gaiters that a lot oh. of people wore uh, the past few years during COVID. I have like six of those. I have a purple one. I, yeah. I remember them from Survivor. So that's so cool. Yes, you made exactly. Buffs. Yeah. Oh, what? yeah. Oh, I used cool. to work on the Survivor project too. What? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> So I'd always know like a year ahead of time what was happening and I couldn't what? say anything. And, yeah, I worked with the, you know, the producers and um, VPs at CBS. And Whoa. so, yeah, I mean, it, it was, and in that sense, you know, it was a really great role and it was a lot of fun to have these opportunities. But ultimately, I felt like I wasn't serving people by pushing or providing products. When I look at, you know, Buff specifically, I'm like, there's only so many of these that people can have. I mean, (laughs) we can keep changing the design, but, Uh. (laughs) you know, there's only so much need. And that's what I also kind of felt, you know, working at Adidas and events. I did a multi-million dollar event with Little Yachty in Georgia. And it was, yeah, and it was amazing. And you know, looking back, it was a lot of fun. But again, I was, you know, kind of in the process of, well, what am I serving? You know, what is my my purpose? And that's where I kind of transitioned away from that after COVID and kind of answered the call, so to speak, to dive into yoga and really the practice of, you know, helping people. Whoa. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I feel like a lot of people can start in the field of yoga and then transition off to something big, like, oh, I want to do something bigger. It's really cool seeing that you started kind of in something much bigger and moved back into your heart space. You mentioned a couple of times, like, what am I serving? And as you answered that question, you moved into the yoga space and open cove what was the process of opening i don't I have no idea oh what's it like to open a yoga studio oh my gosh <laughs> yeah talk about kind of waiting around in that liminal space there's there's so many unknowns it was a little serendipitous in the sense that i had already met or knew the owners of the building from a few years back they had run a downtown hillsboro facebook page and i'd kind of reached out to see how i could be involved so when i saw the for lease sign on the building it just kind of clicked i knew that this was the time i had a month prior left my position at, I had just started at Voodoo Donuts, um, doing local marketing for them. And I had left and had started working on the process of the business licenses and things. And I kind of felt again, like if I just put some of the pieces into place, the rest of them would follow suit. And that's kind of been the journey With the studio is, you know, it's just one step at a time. Yeah. Even with the licenses and permits, plumbing issues, and Uh. (laughs) everything that kind of came up, it was just taking one thing at a time, getting it done, and then moving on to the next. Wow. That is that's so impressive to me. I get stressed enough just checking students into the class. I can't imagine <laughs> what it's like to get a license. I have no idea what goes into opening a yoga studio. So, wow. Yeah. Wow. 
I mean, I, I found that if you just ask questions, I mean, even with like the state tax board, you know, I just called them and asked and I was like, what, what's the website you need me to log into? What am I supposed to do? You know, <laughs> to submit like payroll taxes and things like that. One of my favorite quotes is from Marie Forleo and it's everything is figure outable. Oh. <laughs> and so when I when I just kind of take that approach, like, okay, well, what's happening here? And I'm like, it's okay. The information's out there. I can figure this out. Yeah. And and I think that that's kind of also been my practice with like people. Like the Ooh. information's out there. I can figure this out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's it like not only opening a business, not, not, it doesn't even feel like a business, but opening a yoga studio, but also being a teacher because you also teach classes. It's not just like you right. you hold space for COVID itself. You actually teach. Right. It. It is interesting. I have to, I kind of think of it as like wearing hats. Um, I'll I'll go in before my classes and do owner type things. I bring the inventory in, checking it into stock, putting it in place. And then 15 minutes before class starts is when I switch hats and I'm the teacher and I get the space ready for students and kind of mentally just shift gears in that way. Here and flow. Yeah, right. (laughs) Some structure, some flow, and some balance. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. A topic that we talked about previously that I'd like to dive more in on this podcast is actually microdosing. So I myself microdose, and I found that it helps me enter in that flow Mm -hmm. pretty easily. I feel like when we use natural elements like nature, it helps us get into contact with our own nature, using mother nature to get in contact with our nature. Have you ever microdosed before or are you familiar with microdosing? Yes, both. I was familiar and curious about it for over a year after I had heard about it from another teacher. And then I helped produce an event in Lake Oswego in July. And one of the vendors was a medicinal mushroom or microdosing vendor. And so I ended up purchasing some supplements from them and using them. And it was definitely one of those experiences that kind of shifted my perspective in a lot of ways, just about how I, you know, my place in the world, my place in the universe, and how finite that really is. And also in my physical body, the the separation between kind of those energetic and physical sheaths, just about where my soul is and, you know, this this casing that I live in. Yeah. So that was a interesting experience. It was definitely like in the bathtub, like warm bath and candles. And it was just, you know, placing my hand on my body, but feeling it so separate from oh. my essence or who I was, but appreciating it for everything that it's done. And so that was my first experience. And so I had continued to microdose for a regimen of, you know, four days on, three days off uh, for the next six weeks, I would say. And then kind of once fall came in, I let it go. It was, again, one of those things where I didn't necessarily need it to continue or maintain what I had experienced but like that it wasn't something that I felt I needed 
Uh, in a sense of, you know, medicinal mushrooms weren't addictive in that sense. Uh, Where in my experience, having been a pot smoker, or stoner, yeah, that had become very addictive in the sense where I relied on it to relieve anxiety for a period of time. And the, the microdosing was able to, again, kind of not necessarily relieve any anxiety, but just make me more appreciative of my experience in the world, generally happier and connected. Ooh. Yeah. I like your takeaways that you've come away with microdosing from. I find that, and something that I really resonate with is around during the end, you mentioned that you don't feel like you need to rely on it or like you let it go within the fall. I find that when we enter in states that do alter our consciousness in any sort of specific way, it shows us that it's a possibility. And through meditation or through yoga or even through continued plant medicines, we can begin to have a better relationship with those states to produce them naturally or kind of resolve. It sounds like you were experiencing a bit of anxiety, helping find a natural way to resolve that. You, I, there's so much that you mentioned there that I want to talk about. Yeah. One of the things is you mentioned sheaths. Are mm -hmm. you talking about the koshas or are you like, what do you mean by sheath, a physical sheath? Yeah, definitely talking about the koshas there. And it in that way, it helped me or influenced my meditation practice, oh. um, being able to tap into kind of the, the energetic or the um, pranamaya kosha, um, the energetic body and separate that from my physical body. What is the pranamaya kosha? Um, it's the it's our energetic body that we, we invite in with our breath. So prana being our breath, our inhale, and being able to use that to kind of separate from this physical form or existence Ooh. a lot more easily. And so I think in that sense, it kind of influenced it and helped me realize the separation between those different states and see my, my ego and, you know, the wisdom sheath separately and for what they are and how all five koshas kind of work together in this experience or existence. Yeah. One of the nice things I think about microdosing or medicinal mushrooms is that it isn't an out-of-body experience or you don't feel like you're separated from the world. You just, you actually feel, or I felt in my experience that I was more in the world Whoa. than I had been, but I knew it from a different perspective or different sensation. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for explaining that. Yeah. So I was curious about it. <laughs> you also mentioned cannabis. I worked in the cannabis industry. Why do you think there is a proliferation or rather a heavier use of cannabis that can lead to addiction? Rather, from everyone that I've spoken to that has used medicinal mushrooms, it's almost like anti-addicted. Like you can't because people often have such profound experiences that it makes them take quite a bit of a break before even being interested in using them again. That's what I found universally with mushrooms. However, with cannabis, there seems to be more of a grasping towards that state once you've experienced once. So as we both have tried these natural substances, I'm curious if you have any insight on why was I more dependent on this one and not on the other one? I think in my experience with using cannabis, the the THC that's in it or the psychoactive ingredient yeah. is really what makes 
the biggest difference where I don't see when I've just used um, CBD on its own that that has become very addictive. I think that the psychoactive, the THC portion, again, at least for me, creates this wall where anything that is bothering me kind of dissipates Ah. and it's not there anymore. I almost think of like the mind blowing emoji, you know, Uh it's like, it's gone. It's out of my head. I don't have to deal with it. But when I come down and I'm not high anymore, then everything is still there. And I haven't actually worked through anything Mm. um, or seen things for how they really are. And that's what, in my experience, kept me going back was, okay, well, now I feel this, you know, physiological tension based on my thoughts and it's asking me to to hold on to this substance or to take more of it so that I don't feel this way. Um. And so when I had come off of cannabis, it really was like a um, draw where oh. I was really irritable and agitated. I had a lot of anxiety. I could feel it just kind of permeating throughout my body. But after about three to five days, it was gone and I was able to kind of just be. And so I felt, okay, if I can go through that experience and just kind of deal with the things that that come up from a natural standpoint, really just using my breath, I'm able to kind of process and move through things without reaching for something that essentially gives me more anxiety because (laughs) I, you know, I'd be high and I'd be walking around in the world and I wouldn't be able to make eye contact with people. And I think there was a little bit of this like internalized shame that went along with it for me. And so being able to kind of pull back from that and meet life as it comes, I realized that I didn't need it anymore to relieve the the tension and the experiences that weren't positive. Whoa, that's beautiful. Uh, thanks. That's really beautiful. <laughs> I'm an explorer of consciousness, so I always love altering it in whatever way that I yeah. can and then seeing if I can naturally do it. So I love hearing your story and like how you've worked through it, how it's helped with anxiety and hurt the anxiety and now ending up in the place that you are. The other thing I wanted to talk about is you mentioned addiction a few times. Do you seek to help others through addiction? Like what, as someone who has gone through that, what takeaways do you think have kind of integrated into your being for the rest of your life or that you could share with another person that could possibly going through addiction or whether it's alcohol or cannabis or whatever have you? I would say that to me, the... The addictive experience is kind of twofold. Um, I oh. think some of our our behavioral patterns are are set from childhood or maybe what our parents did or experienced. So even though we might not have um, an affinity towards alcohol, if um, one of our parents does and we find tension in the body, it might be something easier for us to to go towards because we have that subconscious approval like, oh, this is okay to regulate myself. And so that's one aspect that I've had to kind of look at. And then the second is essentially leaning into the experiences and not avoiding them, Um, seeing what they can teach me because 
my addictive patterns through alcohol and cannabis really came from trying to relieve tension in the body from different experiences. I think a lot of that shame. You know, I think it also depended for me. I had my first drink when I was 13. So, and it was, you know, on a catamaran in the Caribbean. You know, I had taken, you know, one of my mom's rum and punches and Uh drank it. And it was like, again, this, you know, psychedelic out of this world experience. And in my understanding, we're always going to try and chase that high. Yeah. But, you know, before that, I had a pretty psychedelic experience going to church with my grandmother and, you know, seeing the light coming in through the stained glass windows and um, looking back in my memory, they're both very similar. And so that's why when now these experiences come up of either not feeling good enough, feeling alone, I notice that my the internal request or the subconscious request is like let's let's get rid of this feeling. We don't want to feel this way. And I have to shift and remind myself and I think that's where breath work comes in and meditation is just being aware of that, noticing our patterns and saying, "Okay, this is happening. Let me go back to my toolkit that I have, which is again breath work and kind of moving through it in that sense." And really being curious about why something's coming up because the addictive process was was really just, you know, painting over the same wall, you know, a thousand times. In reality, you know, you just kind of have to scrape it back to, to its base and start anew or start from the beginning and see what's really underneath instead yeah. of continuing to layer on and ignore. I'm able to really lean into what's happening, why I feel a certain way, and even, you know, regulate myself from a natural state to understand what's happening. At the beginning, you mentioned when tension was held in your body, you found yourself moving towards external regulator, like in an addictive way. Yeah. A calling that's near and dear to my heart is I have this like mantra in my mind that it's like, how can I resolve anxiety and stress? So many people that I talk to, so many mm-hmm. friends that I have, it's it's all around the world now, anxiety. I hear it almost every single day. This is another big question, but I'll still ask you it. What do you think is the remedy for anxiety and tension? Do you think there is one? Do you think there's many? But I always chain my questions together. I try to ask just one question. I just keep on going on and on. But if I had to distill it down, it sounds like addiction came from tension in your body. So it was a sort of salve that you put on yourself temporarily. What do you think targets the anxiety and tension directly? The way that I go about it now when anxiety comes up is initially to go back to my breath, feeling in, um, having a somatic touch holding my body. Sometimes I even put my hand on my chest and pat it a few times, um, almost like, you know, I'm, I'm soothing myself in that sense. But I... I usually go back to a, like a blue sky mind Ooh. in the sense that both physically and, you know, internally, this blissful sheath within myself is is there and it's just cloudy right now. And with my breath, I can kind of envision, you know, with every exhale blowing the clouds away what? to create more of that blue sky. Um, Uh where you can see the sunshine because even like it is in the physical world, 
you know, cloudy day that we get so many of in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> there's so many clouds, but if you look at them, there's gray ones and there's white ones. And the white clouds remind me that the sun is glaring or, or shining on them and reflecting. So what that tells me is that the sun is there and the sun in the sense of my body is kind of that internal light is always there and that I can always tap into it. And sometimes it's a little harder than than others, but that I have the resolve and the tools inherently within myself that I can kind of check back into. There was a lot there. I love the somatic touch of like, hey, I'll actually pat myself. I do that sometimes as well. It's very like I find myself with my hand on my heart. It's very soothing. I love that. But I've never heard of blue sky mind or of um, I've seen so many cloudy days, but I've never taken the time to look at the clouds to differentiate which one is gray and which one is white. So on the next cloudy day, which is probably today, I'm going to go look at the clouds and look at, hey, the sun is still shining Mm -hmm. behind it. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, (laughs) That's super, super cool. Very (laughs) helpful. I'm going to use that today. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. (laughs) You also mentioned that you had a almost out of body or psychedelic experience going to church. Are you a religious person currently? I wouldn't say religious. I am definitely spiritual. I grew up Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic school from kindergarten through high school until I got to college. And I relate a lot of the teachings to things that I can experience in the physical world. So just kind of using the the blue sky mind, you know, when I look at the Trinity, I am Jesus. I'm this physical manifestation of the higher being and the Holy Spirit is, you know, that essence within me. It's that oh. sun. And then God is kind of everything around us and that nirvana or that state of bliss that we can tap into by connecting to the Holy Spirit through our physical body. So I... As, you know, kind of studying psychology, I'm really into Jungian psychology. So, you know, looking at like the Bible and the stories there, I I relate more to, again, you know, how to to internalize that and do the work, so to speak. And and it's very helpful. Even I have a five-year-old son. And so sometimes when I am getting upset or... Um, you know, he's not listening or something like that. I've in the past month, I've started to say a Hail Mary. And it really, in that sense, brings me back to the fact, you know, like I have this divine womb that created this human. And, you know, he is also this physical manifestation of the divine in the world. And so it really is just like a reset for me. And that's how I kind of look at it. I from that, once I got into college, I that's where I started my yoga practice and found philosophy and psychology and meditation. And so I definitely have a big interest in Buddhism and Hinduism, um, but they are such deep, <laughs> deep religions with so many different lineages depending on the geographic area. And I tend to just kind of relate or, you know, agree with certain aspects of each of those. But in that sense, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm religious because I don't celebrate the different holidays or go to 
the the temple or anything like that. I kind of look at religion holistically as these constructs to be able to help us through the human experience. Yeah. But in that sense, not something to be taken at its word because it was still created by humans. Yeah. In that sense, you know, and and I think that's also why there's so many because we all have so many different perspectives and understandings of what we're going through. But in that sense, I can respect each of them. That's really cool. I resonate with that. I find myself to be around the same philosophy of I like taking bits and pieces of specific traditions or religions and incorporating them, but Mm -hmm. not following them in their entirety. Because I feel like when we try to codify our way to connect to divinity, which I believe is ourself, that it's like almost like um, I studied, I was a personal trainer a little bit before a yoga teacher. And in personal training, they have, if someone's knee is bowing outward when they squat, this is the exercise that they must do to have their knee. It's like, well, what if their body is different? Like, right. I, I don't believe that it's just this one fit all for right. a body. So I apply the same to religion. I don't, I've studied a lot of them, but I haven't studied Catholicism too well. And if there's also anyone out there listening, what is a hell? I know like hell Mary full of grace. And then, then my brain goes blank. Like what's right. a hell, hell, hell Mary. I don't even know yeah, what that is. Um, I know a lot of times there's so much in my head that it goes blank too. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's just a few lines. Hail Mary full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Oh, I can see how that relates. You said you had a child, so blessed is the fruit from our womb. So mm-hmm. if a child is aggravating, you're like, I'm trying to bless you. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, and it's helpful too when you go back to, or when I go back to the um, scriptures of Jesus as a child, you know, there's there's times where he ran away from Mary and Joseph and they were looking for him in the streets of Jerusalem and then they find him in the temple and they're like, oh, okay, thank God you're here. Yeah. And, and so in that sense, it also reminds me that like, guess what? Jesus wasn't perfect. Mary wasn't perfect. We all are kind of going through it. And so, yeah, there's, there's parts of sorrow in in those texts, but there's also the redemption and the joy. And I think that a lot of us could could benefit from understanding that, you know, the sorrow is there, but you can find joy. Oh, oh, that's beautiful. I can't wait already to listen back to this podcast because there's so much <laughs> stuff I want to write down. I'm trying to be present though. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Wow. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned psychology and you mentioned mm. Young, which I'm a huge fan of. I love archetypes. Archetypes are everything. Right. So you're, you're pulled towards psychology now Mm -hmm. is there and young i love dream interpretation you mentioned liminal space i have so many questions i'm trying to find one to ask you in this moment but what would you say two questions what would you say is an archetype that you have found appearing within your own consciousness over let's say the past however long or far or recent you want to go back and what is an archetype that you have found within Cove? And take your time. Yeah, I would say the the archetype I'm currently looking at and exploring is like the great mother. And 
you know, in relation again, you know, there's, you know, Mother Mary, but I kind of going back to the hero with a thousand faces, you can find that archetype in in so many different areas. Another one that I love is actually the Mother Tara. She's the, um, in Tibetan Buddhism, she is the mother of all Buddhas. Yeah. And in that sense, what I love so much about that practice is that there's 20 of her. And so when I think of psychology in that sense, uh, you know, we all have parts that we've picked up from from the world around us, but that also serve us in different times. So, you know, there's compassion and there's also, you know, destruction, right? And I think that that's one of the important things that Eastern religions um, or, you know, in this sense, the archetype provides is that there there is both and that you can be you know, multiple facets of the same whole. And that's one of the things that I love about that specifically, that you don't have to be tied into any one thing. And for Cove, I would say the archetype is definitely the healer. I think that a lot of us that come to a practice where we're supporting and holding space for other people, you know, we we definitely lean into this um, healer archetype. And one of the, again, going back to kind of balance uh, with the healer archetype, I think that there's good balance between serving others, but also, you know, holding our seat. And that's one of the things I love about Cove. It's like, yes, well, we can be gentle, but we also need to have boundaries, right? And kind of commingling a few different ideas there. But I think that it, you know, makes sense when you think of meditation and, you know, I have my cushion right here is, you know, that's your foundation that's under, you know, your root. And if somebody tries to go and take it, you're going to just say, oh, here, you know, take, take the, the root, take, you know, my foundation from under me. No, you're going to say, sorry, this is mine. You can have what I have left, Uh, you know? And so I think the balance there is also integrating and working on our, our own practice and our own sadhana in an effort to support and hold space for others. Whoa. Two things I want to ask you is holding, you mentioned holding your seat, you mentioned sharing, but holding your seat, were you mentioning holding your seat in reference to the example that you gave of when you're sitting down and someone's trying to take your seat and you're just like, hey, this, no, you can't have this. This is what I have left. What does holding your seat mean? Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, I think that I use it a lot for good balance on boundaries because working with the healer archetype, we we tend to almost, for lack of a better analogy, bleed ourselves out to other people until our cup is empty. But holding the seat when we can think of our body as the cup, once we get down to, to the bottom and there's a little bit left, you can have a you can still feel that you're serving others by holding that for yourself. And so the, the holding your seat is a meditation. I think it comes from a Buddhist story, but holding your seat literally as far as no, you can't have everything. And it goes back to, to say that we can have this altruistic view, but essentially people are people and we're all in this human experience and 
will continue to ask of you if you keep those doors open. And so holding your seat to me is understanding when it's okay to say no, when it's okay to say I don't have the energy or the ability to to give right now. You know, there's sometimes after class where student might catch my ear and I'll look at my watch and it's been 30 minutes. And so in my sense, you know, holding my seat is saying, hey, you know, I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you, but there's something else that I have to get to. And I think that's fair. That's yeah. fair for both people. You know, I have a genuine interest in others, but I also need to respect my own time and what I'm trying to do with it. And if I give all of it to other people, then I leave myself empty uh. and, you know, without any firm foundation under me. Uh. And so that's what I mean. And as far as like holding your seat and kind of understanding how it relates to boundaries and our capacity to to heal cool cool yeah. thank you for explaining that yeah for sure you also mentioned two things i want to talk about tara and i want to talk about satana mm -hmm. for those that don't know what satana means what does satana mean the most simplest sense would be kind of living your yoga it's a spiritual practice so it is essentially you know, your own inquisition internally and the outside world, working through your own meditation practices, your own spiritual practices. But it also relates to, you know, how we nourish ourselves, how we care for ourselves, kind of like our, our light is an internal seed and we need to water it constantly to continue to grow. Yeah. And think in that sense, when we have or we live our yoga and we have a sadhana practice, then we're able to continue to evolve and share that. Oh, okay. Okay. Cool. Living your yoga. Yeah. Actually, I love that alignment. I find it interesting and synchronistic. You were studying the 20, the the 20, there's multiple Taras of the mothers of Buddhas. And your name is Tara. What? Like, what are the odds? What's the synchronicity of that? That yeah. just, that just really, really caught my attention. I think that's, I, I love following synchronicity. So that one sounds like a cool one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. What other aspects of, well, what put, pulled you towards psychology at this? studied um, marketing and this sort of thing. You opened your own yoga studio and now you're looking into psychology. What pulled you in that direction? It actually happened when I was at first university and I had to take part of my business degree. They had us take different courses to kind yeah. of um, develop our ourselves further outside of this area. And so I chose one that had classes in psychology, philosophy, and sociology. Oh. And so the psychology class that I took was psychology of crimes, hate, and violence, oh. um, of all things. Whoa. <laughs> but but what really struck me, and I can still, you know, see parts of the video in my mind's eye is the story of this little boy walking down a dirt road back to his house and his mother was very mean to him and it just had me kind of going down the rabbit hole of curiosity because it really helped in that sense to see what people do on the surface isn't necessarily what they mean to do. 
and how we're all kind of given different blueprints um, based on where we come from Mm -hmm. and our experiences, our parents. And so that got me really interested. My friend at the time, Dominique, was also, she was in the psychology program. So we took the class together and I felt definitely a call towards it at that time, but the interest really developed more when I went through my yoga teacher training at Uh Yoga Tree in San Francisco. One of our teachers, Darcy Lyons, was a psychologist who integrated the practice with psychology. And that is when I I kind of called ASU online and I was Uh interested in the program Uh and I hadn't started at that time, but once um, COVID happened and I was let go from Adidas because I was doing events and well, we weren't doing events anymore, Uh, were we? So um, (laughs) I took that, Uh understandable. And I took that time to kind of decide what direction I wanted to go back into. And so it was in June of 2020 that I started in the psychology program. Whoa. Oh, so you've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Oh, Slowly. Okay. Yeah. I'm going for a bachelor's of science in psychology. And one of the things about being such a conceptual person is that some of these harder, more data-driven facts are a little bit more difficult for me to understand. And so it took me almost a year for a lot of different reasons to get through my math requirements. Uh, uh-huh. It's very difficult to do pre-calculus online. Oh, God. So, um, I, <laughs> so I actually had to, to go into PCC, Portland Community College. Yeah. Um, I had a great teacher there. She was amazing this past spring. But I've just kind of been taking the slow road on that because I do again, have so many different things that I'm doing. Um, So all at the same time, you know, no, a lot of people are like, how do you do that? And I'm like, yoga. I just go back to my yoga and my breath and I get through it. But that took me a little while, but I am in my, my upper division core right now. And so my my interest there in pursuing the the scientific degree versus the arts is that I'm looking to apply it to a degree in behavioral neuroscience. Oh my god. Um, what? Yeah. Behavioral neuroscience. It's really just um like biological psychology so oh. it's it's really just biological you know, yeah it's, it's just, just biology it's and psychology you put them together that's it it's crazy <laughs> oh wow oh which i guess makes sense because you're, you're dealing with yoga you're dealing with physiology you know right. so now in the in the internal biology so whoa okay so i interrupted you please continue no no okay. I, um no that's that's great i love it And so in that sense, you know, thinking about, you know, physiology and yoga, it really helps inform practice in my teaching to understand that so much of what we experience when we are experiencing tension, you know, mentally and in the body, how they're related, but literally how our nervous system is wired together, you know, as far as our amygdala being Mm. the house of past memories and emotions and how that's directly connected to our autonomic nervous system. 
which is connected to our breath and our gut. So when you do have anxiety, where is it coming from? You know, usually it's about past experiences and our emotions, and we're able to kind of ease back out of that using our breath. But also it helps explain, you know, if you're ever feeling nauseous while you're anxious, you know, it's oh. it's all connected. Oh. And so in that sense, I find it so interesting from the nervous system perspective, how we can use meditation and breath work to kind of rewire, mm. in a sense, those circuits. Whoa. And yeah. Whoa. From a, like, not only a like a spiritual realm, but actually getting to the psychology of it as well. Throughout this entire podcast, and actually just within my like friendship and relationship with you, you've always come across as this ethereal, magical, floaty being. <laughs> so to hear that you've experienced anxiety is new to me. I'm like, what are you even interested in that? I'm like, what? No, like Taurus just floats and like teaches and <laughs> hypnotism. So um, what's your you come but you project and you display like a wonderful wholeness you feel very authentic and i do feel like everyone that meets you meets that authenticity but a question i have for you is you're really in tune with the body as you're now moving into psychology as well what's your lifestyle like in how you show up to life on a daily basis because it sounds like you're very very in tune with these centers that hold tension within our body and since you have this aura of calmness i wonder how do you get to that space oh gosh <laughs> uh, i mean there's so many things that we kind of talked about that we can we can pull from you know, I would say even when I get up in the morning, you know, using today as an example, you know, I woke up around four or five, I went to bed early. So I get, <laughs> I, I try and get a good amount of sleep because that's usually helpful when I realize that um, something is coming up, you know, sometimes the body just needs rest. And I started working, putting together the email that I sent out this morning, but also kind of taking that time after that was together to sit for five minutes and, you know, recalibrate in a sense. Mm. So even though I do so much during the day and do so many different things, I balance that out with taking moments of stillness to, to simply be where I am and going back into the breath. And I think that helps me approach the next thing that I'm doing from a fresh perspective or the beginning, you know, so that when I transition from dropping my son off to going to the studio, taking a few minutes in the car to kind of just simply be there and then walk into the space from that kind of clean slate, so to speak, Yeah. so that I'm not carrying a lot with me. And I think that also helps me be more present to the sensations when they do come up because, you know, I still experience the physical sensations of, you know, anxiety or depression. But through my practice, it's a lot easier for me to notice that they're there and for me to just kind of say, okay, I need to sit down. I need to figure this out. And it it helps in the sense that I can use my breath to to move through something. But a lot of times people are like, well, that doesn't get rid of what you're anxious or depressed about, right? Well, then you have to take action. 
So it helps me kind of clear my thoughts on what the best path forward is. I would say like last Saturday, I had left my partner and his kids and I was at home and I was starting to feel depressed. And I was like, well, why am I depressed? I'm like, okay, well, I'm alone. And I was like, well, do I need attention? And I was like, no, I just need other people. And so being able to, again, take that action and say, hey, what are you guys up to? And he's like, yeah, come over. And it was great. You know, I'm not there trying to take somebody else's energy, but I'm fully aware of the fact that people need people. And I needed to be around other people and enjoying their company because I think there's a time to be with ourselves and a time to be with other people. And then as far as, you know, anxiety comes up, I think it depends on what it is, what what can we control and what we can't. And I think that experience with microdosing was helpful in the sense for me to realize this is just my physical human experience here. And I'm able to kind of take a step back and say, this is the one shot that I have. This is the one day, you know, the one moment that I'm guaranteed here. And... I can spend it being upset about what's going on mostly in my head, or I can just be present. And I use my breath all the time. Like I am such a big advocate of this like internal pump that lives within us. Just yeah. pump that well, you know, and, and the water will come and you won't be thirsty anymore. And one really big, deep breath can totally shift me from this this physical world back into, you know, a space where I can just kind of be and everything kind of quiets down. Oh, yeah. So many helpful tips just in that. <laughs> I really like it. I used to be a Yokchin. Well, I still am a Yokchin meditator. And often they require us to sit for long periods of time. So at the beginning of my morning is normally my meditation time. Sometimes I can make it, sometimes I can't. But it'll be like sitting for 30 minutes. But I like the idea of in the transitional spaces that we have, we're busy people in this world. What if you just sit for five minutes in your car? What if you just take a big breath before your next activity? That's something that I want to try to integrate with. I'm very, very fond of setting up a place and time to relax. Like, nope, everyone's got to be asleep in the house. I'm going to do my yoga at nighttime when no one's around. But I like the idea of, hey, let's take five minutes, stretch your body, or take five minutes, meditate. So that's really cool. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, and I found this really through my own psychological work, is that I could sit on a cushion in a room by myself forever. Like I could be on the top of the mountain and be blissed out all day, every day, but that's not to me, real life. And that's not the human experience. You know, so I often will say, you know, kind of come down off the mountain. (laughs) And that's what I believe living your yoga is, is, is going through the world, through your day with these tools to be present, no matter what kind of comes at you. And, and it's a big practice to develop and, And it takes kind of that attention to do the work every day. But I find more of my meditation comes from being out in the world when, you know, I do have these external kind of things coming at me from multiple directions, you know, whether it's my son or the responsibilities that I have or my ex-partner. There's so many things that we can kind of get lost in, but using each of those as a practice like I say, you know, motherhood right now is my biggest practice. And just because my son is five, you know, he's going yeah. through so many transitions himself. Uh-huh. And how can I rewire 
myself and maybe the blueprint I was given to create a better blueprint and a better practice in being the great mother mm. um, that I want to be. Ooh. So. I like the way that you worded motherhood is your practice right now. Like, that's really cool. A lot of times we can solidify and concretize ourselves into one thing. Like, I am a mother. I am a yoga teacher. But seeing yo yo being a yoga teacher is my practice right now. Like, motherhood is my practice. That's so cool. Yeah. I've never heard that before. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned partner and ex-partner and your kid. <laughs> uh, what I'm recently exploring within my consciousness is allowing my sexuality to come out more so in these quote-unquote spiritual worlds. I, for a long time, had this segregation and these blocks within myself to only allow the yoga teacher rain to come out when I'm teaching and to only allow the partnership of me to come out with my partners. But I'm curious on your thoughts on the intersection, if there is any intersection of sexuality and spirituality, or if you allow those parts of yourself to come out in other areas of your life, no shame if you don't, because I wasn't for the longest time. <laughs> yeah. And I think that sexuality is so interesting because, you know, we say that word and there's such a public connotation that it has to do with like pleasure and, yeah. and those kind of physical manifestations of it. But sexuality to me, especially after I had a child, has become so much more deep and, and integrated in my body because it really is a felt sense of ownership over, you know, my body and my space and the energy that I give to other people. And I kind of, again, going back to Catholicism and like mm. Adam and Eve, right? We talk about the forbidden fruit and the fact that, you know, we were all walking around naked and then one day there was this forbidden fruit and we all kind of covered up. But kind of like the public direction, especially as it goes as far as like breastfeeding is like, well, this, this physical body has been given for certain benefits and to me, sexuality is really being comfortable in my skin mm. and not feeling ashamed for what I have or, you know, how I move or even as it does relate to pleasure, you know, who I decide to share that with. I think that there's when we think of the the soul and the that that energetic body within ourselves there's so much of sexuality that's tied into that and when we see somebody else that has such a high energy and we connect with that you know literally on the same wavelength right then then there's this connection and I think in that way, if people can see it, then it doesn't really matter what the physical form we've been given is. You know, we have that energetic connection to somebody else. We're aligned. And the the constructs of these physical bodies are, you know, just kind of the, the wrapping. And being able to appreciate somebody else's body, even if it has, you know, stretch marks or blemishes or things like that, none of that matters when, you know, somebody is so comfortable in their skin. 
you don't you don't see that or in yourself you don't or at least for myself I don't focus on it anymore as as something that's negative it's like oh, okay well these this large organ on the outside yeah. of my soul decided to stretch or the blemish is because you know there's too much debris within a hole and the body's trying to to push it out and and so in that sense you know we can kind of distill ourselves down and and i think sexuality is kind of at this this center and i yeah i think that it would be a lot better if you know we all kind of were able to tap into that or feel comfortable with it because there was such a long time that you know i didn't even wear strapless shirts to show my shoulders or after I had my son I got rid of all my cut off jeans and it was like oh you know I, I'm not this person anymore I can't express myself in this way and there was definitely you know more of a chrysalis period of kind of coming back into that and knowing that I can express myself in any way that I want and you know my physical body in this world is the way so many of us do that. Yeah. To show ourselves from the inside out. It's beautiful hearing your story of how you came back to connecting to the energetic quality of your sexuality and seeing that you are this beautiful, radiant being based off of the energy, not necessarily the... I love... Also, side note, I love that you use the correct term for the butterfly. You use chrysalis rather than cocoon. That was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Side semantic nerd <laughs> note. <laughs> that was yeah. really cool. But... I love that you have found connection into that and hearing your understandings of sexuality was really, really informative to me, seeing how that is approached. And I do agree with within society, it often is overt, like they're thinking overt sex or something like that. But sexuality can be, and it sounds like for you, an energetic quality. And mm -hmm. I really, really resonate with that. Yeah. Oh, Thank cool. you. Yeah, of course. Of course. I have some word associations that I want to ask you. Okay. One of them is literally the name of the yoga studio, Cove. What, what do you think of when you hear that word? What brought you to Cove? And it's spelled with a K, K-O-V-E. Right. Um, so I, I'm very curious about that. Yeah, that, that came about a few years ago. I was working at Next Adventure in Portland, um, heading up their marketing department and was kind of in a space where I was, again, trying to figure out a name for this studio that I'd wanted to open. And, yeah. and I was on my phone texting again and I was saying, I love you. And it, you know, my, my fat thumb, <laughs> so to speak, pressed the, the K again instead of L. And I was like, oh, what the fuck is a cove? <laughs> And, and, it, and it sounds like such a silly story, but again, it was kind of that coming back to, you know, self-worth self and self-esteem of like, okay, why was I giving myself such a hard time for this silly mistake that didn't even mean anything? Yeah. And it was in that moment downstairs in this house that I did that. And I was like, oh, it's like, wait, what is a cove? Uh-huh. And, and then I looked it up and I was like, Cove is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I was like, oh, I, that could be the name because it's, it's 
cove or cove, like love. Oh. Um, so that's essentially what what cove means is it's just another word for love. And it has more to do with, again, self-love and, you know, loving ourselves and how, you know, divinely imperfect we are um, at any given moment. So. Whoa. I yeah. love that. <laughs> what a joke. <laughs> I love that. Also, the pronunciation of it too, like cuff, like, oh, I cuff you. Oh. Yeah. I love that so much. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> and especially the self-love and compassion that comes from making like a little innocent mistake. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, it's a beautiful mind. Every time I see it now, I'm going to think of that. So, Wow. wow. Yeah. I mean, because how many times do we like trip over our own feet and then give ourselves a hard time for it? It's like, yeah. does this seriously, does this even matter? Yeah. No. <laughs> Not at all. Right. <laughs> Another one I have for you is there's a difference within my consciousness. I'm interested if it's the same for you, but I, I use the word asana a lot because it is Sanskrit and I believe a lot of vibrations. I love sending vibrations through people's bodies. And language is a wonderful way to do that. So I try to speak as much Sanskrit as I can. But when you hear the term asana, do you have, what's your association when you hear that word? Um, what what arises when you hear that word in a class or just in your normal everyday life? Yeah, it it again, I, I go back, you know, originally to the physical um, yoga practice and movement. I at this point in my journey, tend to think of asana as, you know, just a means to an end. I go through the the physical practice to open up the body in order to sit, in order to feel good in my breath. It helps open up my diaphragm and allow the breath to move more easily. So I definitely look at it as like one piece of the whole. It's also interesting because coming from a background in uh, marketing for so long, it's also the name of a project management system that oh. I've used for like eight uh -huh. years. Uh -huh. So I know that there's probably better ones out there now, but like <laughs> that word I'm just so drawn to. But I'm the same as you. I try in my sadhana practice, uh -huh. um, again, to <laughs> yeah. incorporate or learn um, more of the Sanskrit words and and I, I would agree, you know, bringing them into the, the practice that we share so that other people can kind of feel that resonate so that they also can feel that it's not just, you know, a physical posture. It's everything that's happening in and to our bodies while we're doing it. Yeah. 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 Feel the holistic. Right. Sense yeah. Of it. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, beautiful. Have you ever considered making Kova yoga teacher training? I know there's so many beautiful ones out there, but just a question I had. I have. It's definitely the next thing on my list. Oh, uh, Yeah, oh, cool. a lot of people have asked about it just because I think the practice and, you know, what I believe can comes together for a holistic yoga practice is a little bit different than, you know, you might find at a franchise studio. And so I 
am eager to kind of share a lot of that with mm. people. I think it's taken me some time. I know that you understand because you've done so many things in your life. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, okay, well, let me open the studio. Let me kind of get my feet wet. And that's one of the reasons I brought on additional teachers in the past few months to take over even some of my classes so that I can bring more attention to more of these programs that mm. people can kind of dive into, um, whether through like a teacher training or some of my, you know, other programs that I'm looking to put together. Oh, so, cool. yeah. Whoa, so much new news for Cole. Mm. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Another question that I have is you mentioned offering something at Cove that was different from the franchises, uh, the bigger franchises that can often pop up. This is a question that I'm insanely passionate about and curious about at the same time. Why? Yoga is such a beautiful practice to me personally. Like I feel like it saved my life, like it helped me move again. I had a terrible back injury. People that have listened to this podcast have heard that story. But yoga to me is life. It's absolutely everything. It showed me how to connect my body with compassion. And I'm curious as to why there are, I'm not trying to bat bounce any studios, I will not say any names, but why the bigger the franchise, yoga almost gets diluted. It seems like such, it doesn't seem like it is such a spiritual and beautiful practice. I guess the world can pollute anything, but for a practice as beautiful as yoga, why do you think what was the mechanism that kind of caused the franchises to pop up that's it's now in my experience when i go to the bigger studios a watered down exercise movement where it's i'm supposed to get a workout out after out of this class rather than i'm supposed to connect to my body in this class where do you think the disconnect in that happened Ooh, um i think the disconnect happened maybe 20 years ago with kind of the internet and people becoming more aware of yoga practice because I know when yoga first came um, from the east to the west, those teachers were, you know, like Iyengar was very specific in the fact that yoga was, you know, more than asana, that there was these different elements that we needed to incorporate. But you're right now, there, you know, even one of the things that I'll bring a lot into my practice is pranayama, and you don't see that almost anywhere. And I think that one of the reasons is just because there was kind of this information overload. And a lot of times when there's a lot of information, it it gets diluted to just the the top layer and people just kind of cherry pick that off. You know, again, I can't really say, but I think that in that sense, it also has to do with the internet. We have images. All we're seeing is the physical body. And so to see someone just kind of sitting there, that's not very exciting. But now <laughs> there's, you know, different yoga challenges and yeah. contortionists that are kind of making even Ashtanga yoga look like a completely physical practice where those who do practice 
Ashtanga and which is, you know, one of those more complicated practices where you have some of those hard poses and you flow from one to the next. You know, traditionally, yogis wouldn't be doing this and posting videos or or photos of themselves doing these complicated poses on Instagram. And so, um, you know, it was much more of a, a practice to do on their own to kind of transcend the physical world by moving the body in such a way connecting again to the the breath and the present moment. And with the proliferation of, of imagery and social media, I think that that's where the practice has kind of gotten, you know, more physical in form. We talk to people about yoga now and people are like, oh, I'm not flexible enough to yeah. do that. And I'm like, cool, but can you breathe? <laughs> like, are you breathing now? Like, that's it. <laughs> like, you can do it. So yeah, it has nothing to do I'm very honest with people, you know, I, my heels still don't touch the ground in a downward dog. And, you know, I'll probably have tight hamstrings for eons. But the fact that I keep doing it, that I keep breathing through and I keep finding more space, that's good enough for me in my practice. Like it doesn't have to look like a perfect upside down V. Yeah. I just started getting into handstands this year. And for my own practice, I just kept telling myself, well, I don't need to do these inversions to do yoga. Yeah. But there was the shift really came because I was like, well, it's fun. Yeah. Like it's fun. I fall over. I can laugh at myself. And with the presence that I was able to gain through my practice, I was able to find it fairly easily. And I was very surprised by that. But it's again, not something that I practice all the time. I do it, you know, when I'm at the park or doing cartwheels with my son. It's just something that is fun for my body to do. Yeah, I agree with that ever. um, I didn't know that I agreed with it until you mentioned it. But I guess the internet has changed a lot. And when you take a photograph of someone, the yogis in India are not taking selfies of themselves, you know, one handed handstands or that sort of stuff. We find that and we're attracted to it. So that we start to do yoga thinking that that's what we'll get to Mm -hmm. pursuing the posture rather than the energetic feeling that comes from it. And I 100% resonate. Sometimes I'll chase poses and I'm like, that looks super cool. I want to do it. But it is an internal practice. Like, how is this making me feel? Okay, if I get this, if I get my heels down on the ground, do I have a better connection with myself? Or am I validating myself that I'm doing something, quote unquote, right? Because I saw someone, an influencer on Instagram do it. Yeah, that's what I I always say in class when I invite people to kind of take a pose further. I'm like, you know, ask yourself, is this something that serves me or serves my ego? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm going to copyright that. I'm not going to copyright that. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to use that in my class. It's a tweetable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We're coming up uh, a little over an hour now. And I asked you a bunch of questions that I want to ask you. There's still more that I want to ask you. But has there been anything that I didn't ask you that you'd love to dive in? Because we still have a good amount of time to talk. And I'm curious if there's anything on your heart and mind that you'd like to speak to a past version of yourself or someone in the present moment or just anything at all. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I would say that one of the first things that comes up when you ask that is the practice of impermanence, kind of being different versions of ourselves. And there 
is definitely, you know, when I look back 15, 20 years ago, the Tara that was then is definitely not the one that is now. There's still a certain part of me, again, you know, that soul that is who I am and that I can tap into. But there was a a long time that my ego, you know, was the one behind the wheel. And I think that from a place of impermanence and allowing ourselves to let go of certain aspects that no longer serve us and moving into different versions of ourselves to just kind of carry ourselves with grace. In that sense, the only reason I was able to kind of get to that point was a lot of shadow work, you know, looking at other people, understanding what is it that bothers me about them and reflecting that back in like a mirror, like, okay, well, what is it about them that shows a part of me that I don't want to see? And really holding space for ourselves that we all really develop out of preservation. We are still animals. It's it's in our biology to preserve ourselves and finding that grace through the the fact that our body and our psyche is always just trying to look out for us. And in that sense by accepting those pieces of ourselves even if we don't like them or they no longer serve us, we can accept them in others and oh. understand where they're at, even if we're at different places. You know, there are many people I've met that I'm like, oh, you remind me of Tara, you know, 15 years ago, <laughs> yeah. Tara, you know, and but it's also not my job to shake them and say, oh, you need to wake up. You need to do this or that. You know, it's really just to be who I am now and to Um, And if that speaks to somebody and they're drawn to it, then maybe that's a catalyst for them to to change and, and atone for the things that they don't like to see. But in that sense, you know, going back to the breath, you know, it's as simple as the inhale comes and then the exhale. And, you know, we don't gasp for air. You yeah. know, it's so involuntary. We're not gasping for air thinking, oh, when is the next inhale going to come? You know, yeah. we just trust. We just know over time that the inhale's going to come and we're going to let go. The inhale's going to come and we're going to let go. And so if we ever or if even I'm ever having trouble kind of moving into a different space, I just let myself kind of go back to my breath and understand that, you know, I can't hold on to pieces of life forever. I can't hold on to the pieces of me forever um, that no longer serve me. And I need to continue to move forward to kind of live my dharma. Mm -hmm. And dharma, what does dharma mean? Dharma, in that sense, you know, is our purpose. Um, It's what we're supposed to be doing in the time that we have here. Mm. I love the explanation of Dharma. And I also really love that you touched on shadow work and seeing parts of yourself exist in other people, but having the maturity of not to try to fix that person, kind of letting them see where they are and seeing how it affects you, seeing what part of them is showing up that causes a reaction to happen within yourself is really beautiful. Is that your understanding of shadow work? I hear a lot talked about shadow work and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Mm -hmm. But is that what shadow work means to you is finding those subtle reactions of past experiences that we've had or 
Could you go a little bit deeper into what what is shadow work? Yeah, I I tend to use this example just because it was so funny. It was kind of when it just kind of clicked for me. I was at insomnia near Tannisborn here in Hillsborough, and I was studying for a math test and. There was a woman at another table talking about a mission trip that she had taken to Africa and all of the people that she helped. And the, you know, the internal conversation for me was like, oh, aren't you so great? (laughs) And so in that sense, I literally, after that, that spark came and it was like, oh, aren't you so great? I started laughing and I was like, okay, what is this telling me about myself? Uh And kind of going back to the healer archetype, there's, you know, seeing this healer and, you know, little humility. Definitely when I look inside and I kind of dissect something like that, there's different ways that I can look at it and I can say, oh, do I think I'm this, you know, altruistic healer who has no humility? And I'm like, okay, no, I, I definitely think I have humility. Go through the check boxes. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes shadow work is in that sense, trying to show us a piece of ourselves that we want to move away from. But I think it also shows us a piece of ourselves that we don't want to be. So in that sense, it was just kind of a reminder to stay humble, to not get to a point where I thought, oh, I can just, you know, heal everybody or I'm so great in what I do. You know, it was just kind of that check, like, hey, don't get too far ahead of yourself. And even in the yoga space, I think we we see that a lot with different gurus and they've gotten a lot of even in legal trouble sometimes (laughs) for kind of going down that path. So I think in that sense, the shadow work is to just realize that what we're seeing or what we're experiencing is a part of ourselves and somebody else that perhaps our subconscious hasn't allowed us to see. And that's why we get the physical or mental response of like irritation or anxiety, et cetera. Because sometimes when somebody is uh, running around and they're like, oh, I need this or I need this or da, da, da. And and I can feel the physical manifestation in my body of their anxiety. And I have to remind myself, okay, this is an opportunity for shadow work in the sense that I have a tendency to be anxious. I... I understand where they're at mentally to be in that space and responding in such a way and that now that I'm able to see that clearly or outside of myself, I can kind of pull back into my heart center into who to who I am. And I think that shadow work in that sense is different than light work. Light work in that sense, you know, I hear a lot of, you know, love and light. Well, yeah, I think, you know, it's kind of us being on top of the mountain, right? You know, Ooh. it's when we're by ourselves and, you know, we're free of all these external variables, it's a lot easier to to be a light worker and to share this bliss. Yeah. But at the same time, that's why there's a balance between light work and, and shadow work is because we need to accept that there are these, you know, darker elements to ourselves that need to be integrated. And that part of the human experience is that they're not necessarily always going to go away. Jesus, Buddha, what have you, they all had bad days. And it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a few bad days, you know, as long as you 
can work with your toolkit, you know, your breath, your meditation, you know, your psyche, you can kind of go back into all of those things, you can move into more of a a liminal or an even space, you know, so you're not always so blissed out, but you're also not so depressed, you're just able to be. Yeah, I love what you said about shadow work of it illuminating parts of yourself that you might not want to be because often when I find those reactions like (laughs) I was internally cracking up at your story because when you mentioned like the missionary going to Africa and like I I had the same thing I was like aren't you so awesome I was like whoa okay (laughs) maybe I have some shadow work to do too Uh, (laughs) I love it but your also explanation of it as well of it being like oh is that something I'm really trying to avoid of like I want to keep my humility so am I having this reaction just upon I'm not even there just hearing the story because that's a part of myself I need to uncover and I also really like what you mentioned about I have such an aversion I try to be more accepting of it but of all the love and light because I feel like some of the time it doesn't honor the times of anxiety and of stress. And I see a lot of people promote that, oh, love and light, love and light. And also a grasping and a gravitation towards that because it looks super pleasurable. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, this person's got these super crystals and, you know, they, they're really breathy when they talk and, you know, they're super, super cool. I wish like if I did what they did, I would have that. But not, as you mentioned, having a balance of honoring the shadow, but also honoring the light and not just staying in the light because then you're not honoring those anxiety spaces and stressful and, but also not staying in the shadow because then that can be depressing if you're always constantly analyzing like what part of myself is feeling that, you know? So I like the balance of the two, the yoga of the two, the unity. Yes. (laughs) Cool. Well, at this point, I still have more questions, but we've been going for a while. I would like to just clear the space at this moment for where can people find, like, what are you up to? Where can people find you? What's your Instagram? What's your website? Like, all all things Tara, can you direct? And we'll put it in the show notes as well, but I love to find all of the ways people can find you. Yeah, for sure. Um, you can find me on Instagram at hey Tara Michelle, just one L. Um, my website is taramichelle.com. You can also find me at Cove Yoga or coveyoga.com. Running all the things. <laughs> cool. <laughs> all the things. Yeah. Thank we, you. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah, this thank was you super fun and I appreciate the the space to be able to share. Oh, it's a joy. It's really a beauty to actually be in your space. So thank you so much. Of course. I have a saying that I say at the end of every podcast. However, you have the floor. Is there a way that you like to close out a yoga class or after you see a dear friend? Is there a way that you like to end it? I'd love to get your spin on, on closing this down. Oh, my... Kind of going back to a lot of what we talked about, my way to to close it out is to bring our hands to Anjali Mudra into prayer in front of our heart center and in reverence to the divine that lives within each one of us, we bow our heads. Namaste. Namaste.